0: and to claim CME CE credit. Sylvia S. is a school teacher and patient in your practice. As you're finishing today's visit, she asks you, what do you think about schools reopening this fall? I'm a teacher and I'm worried about going back into the classroom. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today to discuss a variety of issues concerning COVID-19 is Susan Feeney, Assistant Professor and Director of the Nurse Practitioner Specialties Program at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Good morning, Susan.
1: Good morning. So um, this is a really hot topic and really important. So thinking about what Sylvia said, you know, parents and schools are trying to decide about about reopening. What do we know about the influence of schools closing on COVID-19 outcomes?
0: Well, um, we, we have only retrospective data. And from earlier this year, um, a study published in JAMA looked at the incidence and mortality across the United States before and after primary and secondary schools were closed in March. Um, what they found was a significant decline in infections and in deaths once we uh, started closing the schools. For example, the absolute reduction in COVID-19 incidents, so the, the, the new cases mm-hmm. associated with school closures, was about 424 cases per 100,000 people within the 17 to 42-day period after schools closed. So once schools closed, the rate of new cases went down. Regarding mortality, right. following the school closure... There was a 58% decline in deaths per week after school closed compared to before. That translates to about an addition, that uh, reduction of 13 deaths per 100,000, again in the 27 to the 42 days after closure. Um, We don't know how that translates into now because during the weeks prior to school closure, we didn't have social distancing and masks. and all the preparations that schools are trying to use. But the reality of the matter is um, we have some data that shows closing schools decrease the spread and the mortality rate of this infection. And I I think unless you can guarantee exceptionally good social distancing and and consistent mask use, um, opening schools seems to have uh, the potential to really increase both the infection rate and the mortality rate right. from COVID nineteen.
1: Well, and then we have the recent data about the, you know, the the viral load in the nasal passages of children, um, and that they're super spreaders, a sort of in a sense. Um, so that's that's more along the lines of, you know,
0: absolutely, sort of an, the ten to nineteen yeah. population has a particularly high ability to spread this yeah. infection to, to others.
1: Yeah, it is it is a dilemma and, and it may be come down to, you know, positivity rates in your particular area as well. So we know that masks and social distancing work, we know that, right? But what else can we do to help patients lower that infection risk of, of COVID-19? What else is there out there besides masks and social distancing?
0: Well, um, we, we, everyone's been washing their hands and probably overusing, uh, alcohol foams and so forth. Very interesting publication came out this past spring that looked at what medications actually increase the risk of COVID-19 infection. And the drug that jumped to the top was proton pump inhibitors. This was based upon an online survey of 50,000 adults, um, Using regression modeling, they found that the odds of becoming COVID-infected were doubled for those wow. patients who used a PPI once a day. And for the population that used it twice a day, the rate was almost, uh, was more than tripled. So taking wow. these drugs, having decreased um, uh, or ha- having a more neutral gastric pH
1: yeah, increased
0: yeah. the risk of COVID-19 infection and this somewhat makes sense you know if you've suppressed one of the natural barriers uh your your gastrointestinal tract's acidity the virus has a greater chance of taking hold and causing infection Um, I want to remind listeners of two things the only indication for twice a day PPI is Zollinger-Ellison syndrome an extremely rare condition. So if you've got patients on twice-a-day PPI, that second dose is purely placebo and right. should be stopped. Um, uh, one of the other things this study found was that H2 antagonists like um, uh, well, famotidine um, right. did not increase COVID-19 infection risk. So I think if you've got people on twice a day, move them to once a day, and ideally move right. everybody to once a day, unless they've had a proven bleed or Barrett's, switch them over to yeah. uh, once or twice a day H2 antagonists. Because um, we right. need to, in addition to wear masks and socially distance, we need to be, do a better job of preventing the spread right. of this illness.
1: Yeah, and that you know, all of the new all the research says to try to get people off of the PPIs or to use them more on a PRN if possible, and using the h 2 um more frequently. So that this is that's really pretty impressive, um, and something that we can hopefully help drop people's you know morbidity and you know rate with that. Um, so the other thing that's very that's in the news and everyone's talking about is the concept of an antibody is if i've had it is it protective and how do i know if i've already been infected so what are you going to what do you tell patients as far as when should they be tested if they think they may have had covid or they want to see if they have an antibody
0: well um this all became very hot when the world health organization issued a statement that was rather confusing um, and what they talked about were the, the patients who thought they might have been ill, um, the concept of pre symptomatic versus asymptomatic. And I, I just want to clear those things up. Um, pre symptomatic means you're infected, but you've yet to mm-hmm. express symptoms. Asymptomatic means you're infected, but you have no symptoms. And it turns okay. out um, a systematic review looking at 50 plus thousand patients found that um, being asymptomatic only occurred in about 15% of infections. Um, the vast majority of time, people were pre-symptomatic. They were infected, okay. but they didn't know they were ill, or they, they had symptoms but didn't recognize those symptoms as being infectious. They may have had a cough. They may have felt fatigued. They may have had um, some, uh, uh, some low-grade uh, sore throat or whatever. And so, um, you know, we know that loss of taste and loss of smell is pretty common. Um, if, you're, if you're not in a circumstance where you're, you're, you're being cognizant of that, um, you, you were probably pre-symptomatic, and, and your asymptomatic state was just that you didn't recognize that you were ill. Um, All right. So then now people are thinking retrospectively, oh, back in January, I had that horrible cold, maybe I should get antibody testing. And it turns out that antibody testing is very, very useful when done on a population basis, because it can tell about where the rates and um, uh, incidence of the infections are occurring in these pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic stages. But on an individual basis, it means very little. Number one, having COVID-19 antibodies, we don't know if it protects you about, uh, against getting a secondary infection. The other thing we know is right. that the half-life of these antibodies, based upon a New England Journal of Medicine article, is only about 30 to 36 days. So if it's been more wow. than a month than you've been expo- that you felt you might have been ill, An antibody test is not going to be reflective of whether you've been infected or not. So I have been encouraging patients. I mean, insurance companies are not paying for this test for a very good reason. It provides no individual information. So I would encourage patients to not bother getting tested, Um, Encourage them to save their money and buy more masks, Um, and just take good care of themselves and recognize that they won't be protected if and when until we get a really good vaccine right
1: a vaccine right now that's important information because i think everybody's thinking there was all this confusion about herd immunity of people large amounts of people who got the disease naturally right so that's really good information so what about people who've had uh who've been infected um for example um someone who might have been in a in the hospital on a ventilator, you know, with with uh, maybe some renal complications. Um, what do we know about post COVID symptoms? And because I've heard that this can have become a chronic illness. In other words, the the, the effects of this disease on people post infection are pretty severe. What what do we have as far as that information?
0: Um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you've heard me talk about my friend Phil, who's now uh, yeah. two months, three months off his ventilator, and and he's still recovering. Um, we have good data out of the Italian cohort about what happened to hospitalized patients. Um, they followed them over time, um, and what they found was that um, during the hospitalization, about three quarters had pneumonia. Uh, about uh, one in six required some form of ventilation and 5% had to be on a vent. At about um, uh, 36 days after discharge, 13% reported being symptom free. So the vast majority um, still were having symptoms a month out. And over half of the people in the study, 55%, continued to have three or more of their COVID symptoms. The most common symptom was fatigue um, in 53%, but dyspnea occurred in 43%, joint pain, wow. arthralgias, about one in four, chest pain, and about one in five patients. The other thing that was most sad was that compared to their pre-COVID state, almost half the patients point, uh, uh, completed, a, a demonstrated a significant decrease on a quality of life test. Um, So not only do they have physical symptoms, their overall picture of health um, was certainly um, challenged. So I think we need to follow our our post-COVID patients, um, pay close attention and, um, and, and reassure them that hopefully these will go get better with time, but it's not uncommon to have a long host of symptoms.
1: And I think, too, that we we should not ignore people who were not hospitalized. A couple of younger people that I know that have had it who've, who've had, you know, symptoms for quite a while. They're healthy. They've recovered well, but they've had some of these lingering symptoms as well. So I think that we need to be um, aware of, um, you know, aware of the impact on non-hospitalized people that might not have been critically ill with this condition. Well, thank you, Frank. This was a... Um, A very important uh, synopsis of of all, you know, some important topics around COVID.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Susan. Bye now. Bye-bye. Practice pointer. Proton pump inhibitor use increased patients' risk for developing COVID-19 infections. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed, to claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.